today from the Global Lane. Free Britney? Putin proposes trading the jailed American basketball star for an imprisoned Russian arms dealer. The merchant of death. I don't believe that the U.S. sees this as a fair trade. Clinton campaign lawyer on trial. The Durham Russiagate probe picks up steam. There's going to be some humdinger bell ringers coming out this summer. I expect five or six FBI agents are at least in the crosshairs here. They're targets. White supremacists, not Islamic terrorists, pose the greatest threat to the home front. Is the Biden White House narrative at war with reality? Exaggerating a threat that is in reality quite small and completely ignoring a threat that is ongoing and rising. And what Americans can do to prevent mass shootings. And it's all right here on the Global Lane. Is another U.S.-Russia prisoner exchange coming? Talks are reportedly underway to trade a jailed American women's NBA star for a Russian arms dealer. Brittany Griner was jailed in Russia last February after customs officials there allegedly found vape cartridges containing hash oil in her luggage. Well, here with more is Aaron Solomon, chief legal analyst for Esquire Digital. Aaron, thanks for being with us. So I know you've been following this story closely. What are the chances Brittany Griner will soon be released? Thanks very much for having me. I know this is an important story for all of your viewers. In my opinion, six months from now, we could have the same conversation. And sadly, Brittany Griner is going to remain a political detainee in Russia. I don't think that this is going to resolve too fast. Well, why is that? Well, I think, you know, without trying to sound trite about the whole thing, we've got to think about it in sports terms. You've got two sides that have a player at this point that they're looking to trade. And the way it works is they have to find an equitable trade that pleases both of them. When TASS the other day, the Russian news agency, released news that Russia was interested in having a trade with the merchant of death, this arms dealer that's been in U.S. detention since he was um, extradited from Thailand in 2008, I don't believe that the U.S. sees this as a fair trade. Remember, for Marine Trevor Reed, conversations that went on about that prisoner trade were about a year and a half long. I don't think this thing is resolving itself in a few weeks. Okay, I want to get back to that in a moment. But Greiner was taken into custody just before uh, Russia invaded Ukraine. And they've charged her with trafficking for having cannabis residue in a vape. So is she just being used as a political pawn here? What is Putin's goal? Well, that's exactly what it is. In fact, a lot of us thought that in the beginning, and it wasn't until the U.S. called her, quote unquote, wrongfully detained a couple of weeks ago that it really put weight behind that argument. Wrongfully detained. And then the addition of Bill Richardson, a trained hostage negotiator and former U.S. ambassador to the U.N., really puts a lot of weight behind the notion that Brittany Griner is a political detainee or a political prisoner. And they really want Victor Bout, the the jailed Russian arms dealer, uh, as you mentioned, the merchant of death, who may be traded for Griner. Now, he served less than half of his 25-year sentence. And you mentioned that really isn't a fair trade. A convicted Russian arms dealer for a vaping WNBA star? What's going on with that? Why does Russia want him? Well, the issue right now is that Russia has all of the leverage here. They have Brittany Griner, who is was the most famous American athlete who was playing in Russia at the time. And they took her basically preemptively because they knew they were about to invade Ukraine. So the U.S. does not have a lot of leverage at this point, And this is all working, as you said in the beginning, not just politically, but through diplomatic back channels that tend to be quite slow. Now, Trevor Reed was exchanged in April. 
And how about Paul Whelan? He's still being held. He's an American jailed now for 40 months on false espionage uh, charges. If we keep making these deals, Aaron, how will you ever stop Putin from detaining Americans to get what he wants? Well, that's a very fine point, Gary. I mean, the reality is, you know, you don't want to incentivize other countries to take your citizens uh, when they realize that they have leverage over you. I think there's a much bigger core issue here in the Brittany Griner situation, which is why for years and years, top women's athletes in the WNBA have had to go and ply their trade in places like Russia and Turkey and China. And the reality is because the business model in that league isn't working for them. Well, how is Griner doing now through all of this? Does she even know that there's a war going on in Ukraine and that she's being used politically in negotiations between the U.S. and Russia? That's a great question. Now, supposedly, she does have some access at this point to the U.S. diplomatic corps. So I'm sure that she's been briefed about the facts of the situation. That doesn't change her own reality, which is that Russia, unlike the United States, does not have rule of law. So we have to separate ourselves in our own minds from expecting things in Russia with Brittany Griner to happen like they would if a Russian were detained in the United States. Okay, we'll wait and see what happens. Uh, but as you say, it may be a little longer than we think. Aaron Solomon, thank you for providing us with those insights. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. 19 months after the start of John Durham's investigation into the origins of the Trump-Russia scandal, the special prosecutor's first trial is now underway in Washington, D.C. On trial is Michael Sussman, a lawyer accused of lying to the FBI about his connection to the Clinton campaign. Well, joining us to discuss the trial, Durham's investigation, and Russia-Ukraine connections is former federal prosecutor John O'Connor. John, it's so good to talk with you again. So in your opinion, how strong is Durham's case against Michael Sussman? Well, this may be one of his weaker cases, and there are two reasons. Uh, number one, he's going to have a bad jury here. Many people in the uh, pool uh, actually worked for Hillary Clinton, manned phone banks and gave donations in, in a city where 86 percent of the vote went to um, Hillary. So you have that problem. But underlying it is a fairly weak case in the sense that even though, yes, he made a false statement, it's clear he made false statements. And if the jury plays this straight, then great. Uh, there's an issue here as to materiality of the false statement. The statement is that he wasn't representing anyone. He was just telling the FBI about this false Alpha Bank server story uh, out of the goodness of his heart as a concerned public citizen who wanted to, quote, help the Bureau, unquote. Um, so the problem with it is, is the falsity is that he didn't tell people he was hooked up with the Clinton campaign or was there as a Clinton representative. But a lot of people in the FBI knew that's what he did. And that's one of the problems with it. Um, and also, they didn't the believe FBI the, They didn't believe the information, though, either. That was a testimony this week. They didn't believe the information he gave them anyway. Right. And it didn't take a lot of time for them to do that. It took them about a day. One guy testified for him to realize that this information was worthless. I, I, I would A hung jury or an acquittal would not surprise me. But remember this. Uh, it, it, this may make Durham look bad or the investigation look weak, but I will tell you this, there's going to be some humdinger bell ringers coming out this summer, I think this summer. So so what's next? Do you expect indictments against FBI officials, higher-ups? Oh, yeah. 
I expect five or six FBI agents are at least in the crosshairs here, their targets. And then you have this whole group of people who were doing this false Alpha Bank story, and there's another false one too, the Yodafone, false Yodafone, the Russian cell phone story. So there are two sets of people that can be, you can charge them in one conspiracy or two separate ones. And on the technical side, there's a guy named David Dagan, who is uh, with Georgia Technological Institute, GTI, who I think is cooperating. Uh, so that's a big thing. I think the formerly indicted lawyer for the FBI, Kevin Kleinsmith, is cooperating. So Durham may have a couple aces up his sleeve. I think this test, this uh, prosecution that I think will come will get to the essence and the heart of what Clinton was doing. It is a massive, was a massive campaign of disinformation using Putin's agents, by the way, in America. Well, tell uh, me, uh, I understand that you believe the war in Ukraine is connected to all of this. Please summarize, share your thoughts on this. Well, sure. Uh, Putin wanted Hillary to win, there's no doubt, because of all the largesse she had bestowed on him, from the uranium sales to uh, the dual-use technology she transferred to Russia in, uh, to help Skolkovo, all this Russian reset stuff. Putin loved Hillary. He, she was doing everything um, that he wanted. Now, sometimes there, was, there are a few bucks attached, and that's what her motive was. Uh, so, yes. Now, he tried to get her elected. Everyone involved in the Steele dossier was a Russian agent, literally. So Russiagate itself cost uh, Trump the election and got Putin. What he really wanted in 2016 was a compromisable uh, um, American president and Hillary. Instead, he got a compromisable uh, candidate in Biden in 2020. Now, note that it wasn't until 2020, after their 2021, after Biden was elected, that Putin massed troops on the border of Ukraine. During the four years Trump was in, he didn't even mention a word about invading Ukraine. Under Obama's administration, under Hillary, he came in, and this is after Hillary had left, but he came into the Ukraine and, and grabbed Crimea. But he didn't do anything during Trump's uh, deal. So. The Russiagate scandal actually enabled Putin to invade Ukraine. There's no two ways about it. The evidence is overwhelming. Uh, and, and, and exactly what one thought would happen did happen. By the way, Biden's national security advisor is Jake Sullivan. Jake Sullivan was Hillary Clinton's main foreign policy advisor in the campaign. And it was Jake Sullivan who came up with the whole idea of the Russiagate hoax. He, he, he's the guy that spun that story. John Brennan reported on that from his Russian intelligence sources that Sullivan was the guy that masterminded this. So there's no doubt about it. Uh, now this guy is our foreign policy advisor for Biden. And guess what Biden does? He's, he just about sends Putin an engraved invitation to come in. So uh, you can't make this up. Uh, and now here we watch the slaughter every day and the mainstream media is not in any way either A, blaming Biden, or, or, or uh, B, blaming uh, the Russiagate scandal on this. And no one's thinking about the fact that Putin did not invade during Trump, uh, during Trump's uh, administration. Okay, from San Francisco, former federal prosecutor John O'Connor. Thank you, John. We appreciate you. Thanks for being with us, and go blue. <laughs> go blue. Yeah. <laughs>
<laughs> Good talking to you. President Biden this week wasted little time advancing one of his biggest domestic concerns for America. He made these remarks in Buffalo as the country mourned the dead from the white supremacist mass shooting at Topps Grocery Store. White supremacy is a poison. It's a poison running through, our, it really is, running through our body politic. And it's been allowed to fester and grow right in front of our eyes. No more. For the past two years, Joe Biden has told Americans that white supremacy is the most lethal threat to the homeland. Well, here to set us straight is someone with a different view. Robert Spencer is the director of Jihad Watch and author of the new book, The Critical Quran. Robert, it's always good to talk with you. So I'm assuming you disagree with the president. You've been speaking out about this. You're not saying that white supremacists aren't a threat, but you believe something else poses a greater threat to America and our national security. So what, it is, what is it and why does it pose a greater threat? Well, there's no doubt about it, Gary. I uh, totally disagree with the president on this. They have been claiming ever since Biden took office that white supremacists form the greatest terror threat in the country. But what they haven't had to back up what they've claimed is white supremacist terrorism. And so this Buffalo shooting, as horrific as it is, is also tremendously politically useful for the Biden administration because it actually gives them some real terrorism to point to. Before this, there just hasn't been white supremacist terrorism in the United States. And it was very clear that what they meant was the January 6th Capitol riot. And what they were trying to do was actually demonize all supporters of President Trump, ultimately, as white supremacist terrorists. The reality is that there are ongoing jihad terror plots in the United States. There have been 40,000 plus jihad terror attacks around the world since 9-11. That dwarfs any other terror threat. But the Biden administration, like the Obama administration, continues to deny that jihad terrorism even exists. And so we have them being doubly at war with reality. In the first place, exaggerating a threat that is in reality quite small and completely ignoring a threat that is ongoing and rising. I'm looking for some specific examples here. Well, the white supremacists, it's tough to find. Of course, many things have been classified as white supremacist attacks that were not, including the shooting up, the, the murder of 49 people by an Islamic State ISIS terrorist at the Pulse nightclub in Orlando, Florida. That was actually classified by the United States government as a white supremacist attack until it was called attention to and the, they erased it from the white supremacist list. But they're so desperate to find white supremacist attacks that they have played fast and loose with the facts in that way. The reality is that the shooter at the Pulse nightclub only explained that he was doing what he was doing because of his allegiance to ISIS and because he was protesting against American troops. There have been other attacks in the United States, Boston, Chattanooga, San Bernardino, 
many others, a lot of them that we don't even hear. And Robert, many Americans believe the open southern border has allowed Islamic terrorists to enter the U.S. undetected. Several recent Freedom of Information Act requests have shown that as many as 42 migrants on the FBI terror database were actually caught crossing into the U.S. in the past 16 months. So Project Veritas documented that. So how porous is our southern border? How great is that threat? The southern border is essentially a fictional line on a piece of paper right now. Anybody can come in. Jihad terrorists around the world know this. The 42 who uh, are listed from the terror database who were caught at the border are just the ones we know about. We have to understand that there were others who were not caught. That at, at any time in any group, the number of people who are caught is only a smaller percentage of the number of people who made the attempt. And so there is just no doubt whatsoever that there are jihad terrorists in the United States right now who have crossed over from the southern border. Many more are coming. There are also the Afghan refugees. And the administration has admitted that the vast number of the tens of thousands of Afghan refugees who are now in the United States were not vetted. And even the vetting is just on the basis of criminal and terrorist databases that go by names. There was a brisk business in Kabul toward the end of the American presence there in fake identification. And so it's very easy to not show up on those lists. Those lists are necessarily incomplete. And so we also don't know how many Afghan jihad terrorists may be in the country right now. And your new book. Uh, it's the critical Quran. It's a new English transliteration of the Islamic holy book explained through historical research, key Islamic commentaries. Tell us a little bit about it. Why did you write it? The critical Quran is a new translation that is clear. And I wrote it because a lot of the older translations actually try to cover up rather than reveal what the Quran really says, particularly when it comes to the passages that are used to justify violence and terrorism. So in this translation, they're completely clear. There's also commentary, because anybody who's ever spoken with Muslims will know, they always say, well, you're taking that out of context, or that's not how we understand it. So this one shows the context, and it shows how mainstream Islamic commentators have understood the various passages. So the critical Quran is a book that actually explains fully why there is so much Islamic terrorism, why there's so much violence in the Islamic world, as well as misogyny and so much else. Okay, I always uh, urge Christians to be prayed up before they read the Quran. Robert Spencer, director of Jihad Watch, author of the new book, The Critical Quran. Thanks for setting us straight today. We appreciate you, Robert. Thank you. Always good to talk to you. As Americans grieve the senseless loss of life in Buffalo, New York, and Laguna Woods, California, those shootings, Americans on the left think tougher gun laws will help prevent more evil acts in the future. But New York already has a tough gun law, the New York SAFE Act. The law bans assault weapons and open carry. It requires gun registration, licensing, background checks, and allows for red flag opportunities. The law didn't prevent the alleged Buffalo shooter from carrying out mass murder. Those who intend to do evil always seem to do evil despite restrictive laws. Radio host conservative commentator Eric Erickson recently wrote that the Buffalo killer, quote, fell under the spell of others who filled his head with twisted truths and lies. Erickson believes the country suffers from a spiritual problem, not a political or partisan one. He writes, where God is not, evil is. God is not with us. The American nation, its politicians, and its people have pushed him out of their lives, and evil creeps into the void they've all created.
Erickson is right. Godlessness and evil have overtaken our society only because we've allowed it to happen. It all started in 1962 when atheist Madeleine Murray O'Hare was allowed to push prayer out of public classrooms. That's when America said we no longer want God in our schools. Then in 1973, the U.S. Supreme Court made another ruling that allowed the taking of innocent life. More than 60 million babies have perished in America since the Roe v. Wade decision. Yes, folks, we rejected God and embraced a culture of death. And today, psychopaths uncaringly open fire on innocence as if they're trying to claim victory in some video game fantasy world. And then we wonder why it's happening. Unfortunately and tragically, we'll likely see more mass shootings, not because we lack tough gun laws, but because we lack decency and morality. So what else can we do to reverse this madness? We can start by embracing a biblical worldview and sharing that view with our children. Yes, get back to God. We recently told you about a George Barna study that found while 67% of American parents with preteens identify as Christian, only 2% actually possess a biblical worldview. You think maybe that's why evil is spreading? How can we teach children godliness, righteousness, and decency when we don't believe it or practice it ourselves? Barna says you can't give something you don't have. Focus on the family's Dr. Danny Huerta believes churches and parents can play a big role in helping kids learn godly truths. Rather than trying to control a child or trying to uh, take ownership of, of a child's behaviors, it's about influence, and that begins with you. Yes, it begins with us. And although a majority of Americans may not hold a biblical worldview, pollster George Barner remains optimistic that the culture can be turned around. The reality is we have a remnant of about 15 million adults across the country who possess a biblical worldview. That's a huge remnant. So God could certainly use them to turn around this culture. Yes, the creator of this world, not the government, can easily turn it around. All we need to do is sincerely turn our hearts to God and ask for help. And let's remember the words of Proverbs 10:25: When the storm is swept by, the wicked are gone, but the righteous stand firm forever. Well, that's it today from the Global Lane. Be sure to follow us on the CBN News and NRB channels, social media, and our broadcast affiliates. And until next time, be blessed.